This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Um, so I'm here today with um, an old friend, uh, Chris Weaver, who has been, how shall I say, uh, head of research at pretty much every Russian bank they ever invented. Uh, and it's been in Moscow for, for decades. Uh, I have an announcement. Unfortunately, Fyodor and Tom um, have withdrawn. Um, all I can say about that is that when we set this up, it was pre-war, and now it's the war has started. And um, in Moscow, uh, things are kind of fraught. Um, and I don't think anyone actually wants to be, well, put it this way, I, I think so they've decided to keep the discussion. But um, Chris is a real veteran of the market, and from positions as head of research at Sparebank, for example, um, he's well connected in the government and talks to those people and is well placed to comment on all of this. And I think maybe we can have a nice um, open discussion about what's going on because everybody was shocked by the uh, events of the last 48 hours. Um, we were arguing from the beginning that Putin was very committed to the idea of getting his security deal and that the Russian side tried very hard to do this diplomatically with um, two rounds that so he issued demands in December. And uh, that sparked the meetings in January that was mainly aimed at doing a deal with the White House on the basis of uh, guarantee of no NATO. However, after a, by the end of the month, the, the White House made it very clear that they weren't prepared to negotiate on that point. So they see it as a matter of principle. Um, which is fair enough. I mean, given we were not dealing with Yalta and spheres of influence anymore, but we've had the Helsinki process and we're supposed to be civilized nations where we respect each other's sovereignty. And then there was a second stream of dip diplomacy which started uh, in February with Macron. And that one shifted the focus to implementing the Minsk II deal. And that has a built-in default mechanism that in effect, also gives Russia a veto over Ukraine joining in so much as the idea of that is to make Donbass autonomous. And that hands them uh, the possibility to veto a referendum to join NATO. And given that Russia is in, in effect in control of the Donbass, um, the Kremlin would have accepted that. Um, however, Zelensky 10 days ago on that Friday made it very clear he's not going to do it as far as you know everybody wants to do Minsk too but for Kiev it's a, it's, a, it's a crap deal and even Poroshenko who signed off of it um, never attempted to implement it they didn't like it but it did have the effect of stopping the hot war in 2014 and turning it into a frozen conflict and the next day after Zelensky said no it's a vapid idea and it's a useless waste of time I'm not going to do it then the fighting in Donbass immediately flared up and two days later, Russian troops crossed the border. And all hell has broken loose. So um, where do we go from here? Um, Chris, I mean, did you, do you agree with that analysis? Because although everyone was um, caught out by the invasion, I mean, I, I was saying from the beginning, look, it's a real possibility. Putin's not going to let this go. For him, it's a legacy issue mm -hmm. dealing with the Ukraine. And if he has to go to war, he will. And I think the precedent here, normally he's a slow, careful planner, but the Crimea showed us that when he, occasionally, when he, he thinks it's important, he will act. 
and he'll act very boldly indeed. And he's just done it for a second time. So we shouldn't have been surprised. What do you think? Well, I looked at clearly, uh, I certainly am amongst those who are surprised at the speed at which uh, uh, things changed from, you know, kind of negotiating, uh, threatening to, to this hot war that we now have. Uh, but like you, not surprised that we've got to this point. And, and in fact, uh, I would go further to say that uh, I think the reason why it has accelerated is because uh, the, the Kremlin, I think, it sees that there's a window of opportunity uh, that will close. So in other words, they might be able to do more now uh, that they uh, that they might not be able to to, to later. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, when, when President Biden became uh, president and the uh, two presidents met in June last year, uh, the, the uh, Putin came away from that definitely with the view that he could do a deal or get a deal done with Biden because Biden made very public that uh, he had two priorities. One was uh, containing China and the other was re-engaging with Europe and kind of making, uh, kind of settling relations with, with, with Russia rather than improving relations with Russia, but making that a little bit more predictable and stable was mm. something that he also wanted to achieve. So the, the, you know, President Putin's interpretation with that was, well, we might get a deal with, the, with this guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so it's been building since then because Remember, you know, during President Trump's time, this would not be possible whatsoever. Uh, and also, as we get towards the summer, President Biden's hands will be tied even more because the U.S. will move into uh, the pre-election period, the midterm elections, uh, and anything that he does on, on the um, external front will, will have enormous implications domestically and, and, and could be a factor in the election. So he would need to avoid that. Hence, you have this, this window where Russia really stepped up the diplomatic pressure on the US and also remember we had a brand new government in Germany uh, where the slate, you know, what we'll say was wiped clean but certainly reset to some extent and that also potentially offered an opportunity and also President Macron as we've seen, um, you know, he's also up for election or sorry, he's up for election in, in April and, you know, having some wins on the international side, I guess, would help him. So Russia factored these in in terms of the timing and I absolutely agree with you. It's also part of Putin's legacy planning We've seen a lot of that happening inside Russia over the, the last couple of years, the constitutional changes that changes the role of the Duma, extensive changes in the way the governors are appointed and managed and monitored. And, uh, and we know that there's ongoing discussions about uh, you know, our, our ongoing uh, changes within security forces and, and, and other changes that are to come as part of this kind of legacy transition. Not that Putin is planning to retire anytime soon, but that he definitely appears to be in a kind of uh, transition preparation mode. So dealing with this open wound as far as he's concerned, and, and you know, it's something that's been bugging him for the 20 years he's been in the office, 22, uh, he, he spelled it out very explicitly yeah. at the Munich conference in 2007. So this is always something he wanted wrapped up, you know, yeah. uh, uh, before he eventually leaves office. And, and say the timing, I think, is because he sees the window where he might be able to cut a deal with Biden and, and hence the focus was exactly. On, but uh, I agree with you. It, we heard from him on Monday that he, he simply has lost any faith that a deal was possible, that he felt that well, I was going to ask you. And, before, and actually, before we go on, I want to say to the audience on Zoom, if you have questions uh, or things you'd like to hear about, there's the chat function. Please use it. You can type your questions in there and we'll keep an eye on it. And maybe address those as we uh, as we go, or have a look at them at the end. 
But Chris, to come back to, to the point, I mean, I, I agree the Merkel's departure sort of left Europe headless. And the Russians made it very clear that they want to do a deal with the states. And we just had Biden come in. So, the, you know, he, he was saying himself, diplomacy is back. And I also agree that probably he's the most dovish US president on Russia yes. we've had in a very long time. He, yeah. uh, the first thing he did was, was put the start three deals into place, whereas uh, America has been withdrawing from those deals continuously since whenever it was, 2003 and the ABM, which started that off, which freaked the Russians out. So given everything was aligned, the, you know, that Europe was um, prepared to follow the US lead, that Biden was here to establish himself and has been very actively taking up that role, um, and that he's a dove, and that there's, and there's real common ground. I mean, following the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs eight demands, everybody agreed. I mean, Lavrov said too, like, actually, there's a lot of common ground here we can do on arms control and cyber attacks and terrorism and money laundering which is actually a Putin thing too. Um, where did it go wrong? Why has it gone so badly wrong? Is it, the simple explanation is that it's all about NATO and Putin refuses to talk about anything unless we talk about that first. And it's yes. that simple. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It is, it's, it's about uh, your, uh, Russia's border security. And we, we've, we've seen him, I've heard him many times uh, with his irritation of what NATO was, was doing in the Baltics. and. You know, I, I think the the penultimate straw, if you like, was the, the British warship sailing through Crimea waters. And the last straw was uh, those Turkish-made drones, which, of course, according to Russian media, weren't, were NATO-made drones, you know, striking targets inside uh, Donbass uh, last, uh, I think it was October. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and so it, it's kind of brought it to a head also uh, with those other uh, timing issues that, that I mentioned and people I talked to in Russian government, Moscow always said, even back then, that this would have to be wrapped up by the end of Q1. Uh, mm. And it's because they felt that the window of, of opportunity for getting a deal would, 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 would be closed or would start to close. And the longer they left it, it would be possible. And we heard this from Putin then on Monday. He, he basically said was, there's, uh, there, there's no point in continuing talks because we're not going to get anywhere. The, the talks are just dragging on. And and being delayed and so and and he's lost patience and of course we've had yeah. this well at the time of course we thought well losing patience just means that this is going to you know act out in a fairly fractious way over over a period of time uh not a period yeah. of days so that that's been a what surprise do you, what do you think though um th there's two ways of looking at it i mean my argument is that putin has been planning this for a long time and he could see how it's going to go um he could see that no nato guarantee was going to be extremely hard sell and then he could use that as a hard position and then retreat once tensions got very high and push for the West to force Minsk to on Zelensky, get them to do the hard work, because obviously Zelensky is not going to listen to what Russia says. But if he's got Macron and Scholz and Biden all telling him to do Minsk too, then he might have been persuaded to do it. Having said that, if that failed, then I think the military option had been planned and settled and decided from the beginning. But James Bruce has put up a question um, that there's also a take on it whereby Putin's backed himself into a corner here and the military thing is like his way of getting out. It's like a caged bear. And The Economist ran a cover the same uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, with yes. Putin painting himself into a corner. I, I just totally disagree with that, but I, it's, uh, it's a common view. What do you think of that? 
Well, um, look, I, I don't think that's the view in Moscow whatsoever. I, I guess that's the view, uh, you know, obviously when you're looking in at, at Russia, but in Russia, they don't see that whatsoever because I think you're quite right is that they pursued this kind of pressure and, and yeah, and absolutely it was negotiations with Washington and with Europe and hoping that that would then put the pressure on, on Kiev to get what, what Russia wanted. Russia had ne never any kind of basis of hope of negotiating directly with Ukraine. It was always indirectly through, through, through Washington. We've heard that from Lavrov and a few other people as well. So I think you're right. It was either one or the other. And, and given that we're coming, that Putin is planning this transition, and he, he, this is a kind of an open wound, this, this security issue that he definitely wanted to to suture before he, he ends. It, it, I think you're right that the military option was, was always planned, and he doesn't see it as... Um, uh, as a dead, uh, as a painting himself into the corner. Uh, I think they've been preparing for this. Now, when we look at what's happening in the economy, um, you know, you can definitely interpret what Russia's been doing policy-wise the last several years as part of preparation. And I know it's easier in hindsight to connect the dots in the rear mirror, but, you know, remember a couple of years ago, the IMF and the World Bank were highly critical of Russia, the fact that it was far too conservative in its fiscal policies. Um, it was building up too much financial reserves, uh, had plenty of capacity for debt and should have been spending more to try and revive the economy. Uh, and, and the government refused to do so. And, and now one explanation is that because it was building up this uh, kind of financial reserve in order that it can survive, you know, this uh, onslaught of Western sanctions uh, without yeah. risking any. Uh, and you, I know you, that's kind of a little bit of connecting, you know, two and two makes four with the benefit of hindsight, but it does kind of make sense. Uh, and it does, therefore... Uh, answer your question about you know that Russia Putin has not found himself inexplicably in a corner. Uh, I yeah. think that there's there's definitely an element of planning here, and now of course we're still so guessing as to what the end what, will be. What's the mood then um, in the government circles? I mean, because no one wanted to go here. I mean, it was quite obvious. No, what was well, going to when you say no one, uh, I, I think that's what has become obvious uh, for a while, and, and certainly now is that. Um, the people who have kind of uh, the president's ear are, are much more on the hawkish side, the more the security, you mm. know, Siloviki is, a, you know, people of mm. power, I, I, to, to explain that, uh, they have Putin's ear, whereas the previously kind of the more liberal faction, those who are more involved with economic matters, uh, you know, former uh, former finance minister Kudrin and uh, Anatoly Chabayas and people like that, they all previously would have had a, an input into policy and their voice would have been heard. And it seems quite clear that since the since since, since Crimea uh, and since sanctions started, uh, their influence has deteriorated to the point that they do not have a voice now. And I think uh, we've been hearing that, you know, this is part of the argument that Siloviki, hawkish people have been yeah. saying to the president is that, look, we tried opening to the West, we've engaged with the West and look what they've done to us, you know, yeah. so why bother anymore? It, um, it, occurred to, um, it occurred to me that one way of looking at this is that in the Soviet Union, they sacrificed the comfort you know, of the people, um, prosperity in order, and so we had these exploding tellies, in order to build the machine for the security. So yeah. we had world-class fighter jets. And in a way, the same things just happened. And Kudrin sort of represents that capitalism and um, the whole process with rearming the military, modernizing the military started in 2012. And it began with Kudrin getting sacked because he was against it, that, you know, diverting all the money to the military. Yes. In that sense, we've had a return now to Soviet thinking where Putin is actually sacrificing the prosperity of the country and the people 
in order to achieve his geopolitical goals. And the stock well, market's crashed and, and the incomes have been stagnant for six years. And he doesn't really care. He just has to keep enough to keep the people happy. Well, you so see, this is, yeah, and, and, and you're right. And, and this, I think, is, is the flaw. Or maybe it's maybe wishful thinking because I remember we all got to remember that we're, you know, we've been there for, for 24 years, but you're still a foreigner. Uh, Etc. Mm. Uh, hard gun, and, and you know, so you've got to be wary of, of preaching, uh, etc. But it certainly has been, is my view, and a view that's built up over years, is that uh, where if there is a miscalculation in people's thinking, it will be uh, uh, that's concerning the compliance of people, and uh, I think that you know you can see that over the last couple of decades there has been an enormous change in the demographics in, in, in Russia, there you see more people who were born, you know, at the end of the Soviet Union, who are, who are now in their 20s or even their 30s, they have their own families. Their concerns are, are more about lifestyle, about social support, about job security, the future for their children, very different to the attitude of maybe their parents and certainly their grandparents mm. who would be much more supportive of the government and non-questioning. But you've now got a different generation that have grown up with the internet, they've grown up with foreign travel, they have expectations of life. And you take that away. And now we see some of the sanctions that have been applied, for example, the restrictions on Russian banks, which uh, I don't, we don't know as yet, but it might mean that a Russian issued credit card or, or, or your bank card from your spare bank of BTP machine may not work on a, you know, on a foreign ATM, which means you can't go on holidays. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can also see the inflationary in, impacts from the weak ruble and, and other factors. This, 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 this level of sanctions we're seeing now will have a much greater impact on the broader population than anything mm. we've seen before, not immediately, but over time. And therefore, the question I'm, I'm posing is, you know, will that kind of previously very stable, almost indifferent social political dynamic that the Kremlin has always relied on, will that now come under severe strain as people start to reject that sort of political ideology because it's okay. their lifestyle? And, and that's that, that's a risk the Kremlin is taking. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's the, that leads to protests. I, I want to come to protests and the potential and the link to sanctions in a, in a minute. But let, let's approach the, the, the main question here that... Um, Putin's crossed the border into Ukraine, yeah. and the military operation is underway. However, it's not clear at all what, what the goal is here, what does yeah. Putin wants to achieve. And the two big camps, well, there's three main points. There's a possibility of occupying Ukraine. There's a possibility of regime change. And um, there's a possibility of uh, taking Donbass and making it into a little country, which would guarantee NATO. And this is all being thrown into, into sharp relief by what's happening in Kiev. Um, there were uh, rocket attacks. There was a report of an APC approaching the city. There were some reports of Russian soldiers in the city, but I think those have been dismissed in the meantime. Um, what do you think the end goal here is? What, what is Putin going to do with Ukraine? He said this morning, and Lavrov repeated, that there was no intention of, of occupying it. But what does he get out of it? Yeah, look, uh, it's, uh, it, this is an extremely difficult question, of course, because had we had this conversation this day last week, uh, I, I think most of us would have given a very low probability of what we're seeing right now. Uh, so, but, you know, it, 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 it is what it is. And I think you know, that there are three, the three options, as you say, occupy the country and try and control it. I don't see that because that would just ensure 
you know, kind of almost a, an incremental in, increase in, in the financial pain, the sanctions pain, etc. Uh, and Russia probably wouldn't be able to do it uh, in, in terms of controlling a country like that. Yeah, and, you can you know, take Ukraine, but you can't control yeah, it. The uh, insurrection. It, it, it would just drain the country and it would be uh, an Afghanistan. And, and probably would eventually wouldn't work anyway. You, you'd have to. Yeah, anyway, so I think that's least likely. Um, the, the two more likely ones are that uh, they force a regime change and then uh, either you know, draw a line down the, uh, the Dnipro River and divide the country into east and west and, and Russia essentially says the eastern part is ethnically Russian and this is where we're staying and you've got a natural bar barrier with the, the mm. river that splits the country in half and runs down the, the, the eastern side of, of Kiev. Um, or if Russia you know, is satisfied with regime change, uh, kind of a, a government that they, they, they might have to deal with, then possibly they could pull back to the greater Donbass region, which of course is a lot bigger than that area. Uh, uh, occupied by the separatists, uh, I'm inclined to think that they would force that they will. Their objective is to force regime change, and and then. But how would that uh, work? I mean, I, the I, thing I, is, yeah, I, I don't know. This is what they keep saying: they want regime change, they want a neutral government. Uh, I, I guess the one alternative is that you get uh, the, the the government, uh, Zelensky's government, uh, agreeing to some sort of peace terms, which then leads to maybe some constitutional change that guarantees well, the truth. But that could again, always be reversed. So Putin again, said, uh, said um, the other day um, that neutrality, if, if they abandon their NATO aspirations and adopt a policy of neutrality, then he would accept that, that that would do. Yeah. Um, but, and you don't have to change the regime in order to... Because the thing with regime change, I mean, we're talking about Ukraine. This is a country now that has a democratic... In, um, a tradition. Moreover, it's got a very active civil society and a population that protests. This country is already ousted two crap presidents. And if you yeah. try to put a Putin puppet on the throne, yeah, it's not going to work, is it? It's not going to work. No, no, Ukrainians know it. how to do this. You know? No, th this is it. And, uh, you know, so look, I, it, this is why it's difficult to call it because, you know, on the one hand, I think we agreed that, that it would be quite stupid for Russia to try and control the whole country all the way to the Polish border. Uh, and maintain that control, it, it just would be crippling and, and, uh, and uh, you know, so ridiculous in so many ways. That's not to say, you know, because I say it wouldn't happen or it wouldn't try it, but uh, I think even Putin's advisors would advise against that. And then the question is, how do you, you know, you, you might put a, a puppet government in place, but you say it lasts five minutes after you leave. The, um, the entire population would be on the streets. It would be... Of course. Uh, so it, 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 it may well be. That's why I think that in terms of alternatives, the other alternative is that you literally take half the country split by the river uh, and, and you're there as a constant threat. Uh, so, surely the goal... Neutrality, you know, we're just over the river. So that's possibly the, maybe... The goal is a step short of that. I mean, to pressure Zelensky's government into um, making this change, declaring neutrality. Um, yeah. And you can you can threaten to take half... And the then country. you keep the threat by, by essentially being being close by and, and yeah. already, you know Russia's already shown that you know we'll obviously come across the border if our security is threatened you've agreed neutrality and we're just going to be over the river and, and one assumes therefore that you know Ukraine post a deal like that if uh, would get enormous amount of financial and trade support uh, trade integration with with, with Europe uh, but the condition being then that that deal would remain in place because nobody wants me, a war um... in Europe. 
Let me float my, my pet theory of what's going to happen, um, which I think ticks, ticks the boxes. And, and, you know, my working assumption, the basic assumption is this is all about NATO, Russia security, keeping Ukraine out. Yeah. And one way you could do that is um, you could do this attack, spread the army out, but then very rapidly overrun Donbass as a region. And because uh, they've already accepted uh, and recognized its autonomy, then you create this little country. But then you have a what the Russians see as a legitimate government so that those could invite the Russians in. And so for the first time, they could openly be there and moreover, invite them to set up a military base. And then uh, what you have is a fortified enclave inside Ukraine, protected by the Russians who, who are going to claim that it's legitimate. Um, but they have openly military, which makes it impossible for Kiev to attack it without starting an open war with Russia again. And then Putin's got what he wants, because nobody in the world is going to recognize this. And it's gone from a frozen conflict where the Russians are pretending not, they're not there to uh, a much more stable situation where Russians just basically build a fence along the edge of the Donbass and put lots of tanks in there so that no one attacks it. But because it's a dis disputed border and it will be in perpetuity, you then have guarantee that Ukraine cannot join NATO because you can't join NATO if you have a disputed border for, yes. the last for five reasons. And that yeah. actually solves everything. I mean, the, the fighting <clears throat> that needs to be done in order to capture the Donbass is limited, can be done relatively quickly. Um, Putin gets his, uh, his NATO guarantee. He takes the sanctions as the price of that but then he's actually got his security because I think at the bottom line, he is absolutely terrified of seeing NATO missiles on the Ukrainian border, five minutes flight time, 80% of the population. And that's his goal. And that would actually solve all the problems. So do you think but that's, then, I mean, I, I think that's well, the he, most likely. But the trouble with that is, uh, is that he, he could have done that relatively quickly, um, you know, without this further incursion into Ukraine and the outskirts of Kiev uh, right mm. now. So, you know, but yeah, okay. I, I but doesn't, still doesn't, because doesn't that stop? Doesn't that stop Ukraine um, bringing and massing its whole army on the Donbass border? If you oh, went sure. to Donbass, it, it does. Uh, but you know, and I guess we, we saw this play out in in a in, in a much uh, a more minor way. And I apologize, but you know, if there's anybody from Georgia listening, I don't mean to to, to uh, understate what happened in August 2008. But it was kind of a, a, a back then, we, as we all recall, you know, the Russian military invaders. Uh, obviously, they say it was in retaliation, but it doesn't matter. They invaded, and uh, they came all the way to the outskirts of Tbilisi, uh, and they mm. hit uh, Georgians' military installations, and then they went back to the the, yeah. the border of Abkhazia. Char so, Charlie Robertson said that too, and they also had the opportunity to regime change, change actually, and they yeah, didn't do that so either. It's, it's it's therefore we, as of now, we're still in that playbook uh, where they are striking very hard at Ukrainian military, making a point, and then to say if they were to pull back to either the east side of the river or to the Donbass region. Uh, then that would leave a, a, a much more a firmer message than just simply coming up to the border and looking over at, at Ukrainian troops, because that, that clearly would have left the legacy of, of conflict, uh, you know, arising by accident. But whereas now so, they do pull back. So I, I see what you're saying. And, and it's definitely, uh, and you know what, given where we're at right now, I hope that's what happens because that obviously would be the least damaging yeah. of, of next steps. And the least uh, and number of people sense. would die. Yeah, it would yeah be and, and it, it does cost. make sense in the way you, you describe it. And we have seen it play out in, in Georgia. 
uh, and you know the sanctions that we've had thus far, painful as they are. But you know the, the thing that everybody should remember about sanctions this week, and I'm not sure whether this is just by coincidence or by planning, but the fact that all of this is playing out in a week when the U.S. Congress is in recess on holidays means that the sanctions that have now been signed off in the U.S. are executive branch sanctions. In other words, they're at the, 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 uh, the president has signed them at his own discretion. It means that the president can withdraw those uh, if, if he thinks that circumstances have changed. It's entirely his discretion. Whereas if Congress was in session, they would have moved quickly with the Menendez bill. Uh, yeah. That would have therefore been legislated. It would become law and it will never be withdrawn because we've seen that you know, play out uh, when Congress uh, would, would just will never reduce sanctions against Russia. So the fact that these are uh, presidential discretion sanctions means that they can be negotiated down later so, in exactly the same way as Europe has done. So I don't know whether it's clever planning or, or, or coincidence, but it makes a big difference in terms of what happens next. So you think, because um, I watched the Biden presser, really rowdy one, um, and one of the questions he was asked was that why isn't Putin personally being sanctioned? Because in the Menendez bill, there is yep. a list and everyone's in there, including Putin. And he wouldn't be drawn. He dodged the question. And again, coming out of Kiev, they're not happy in so much as they think the sanctions are far too soft. Uh, yeah. They want to see SWIFT. They want to see oil and gas bans. They want the whole nine yards. Of and course. it does look like Biden um, is pulling his punches to some extent. And well, he why has no keep choice. anything, why keep no anything choice. in reserve now? Uh, no, no. Well, there, first of all, there is something, uh, you know, SWIFT or whatever might be say it's in reserve, but they're not in reserve in reality. The, the reality is that when you cut through the politics and you look at, at the real world, uh, you know, Europe is dependent on Russian energy. Uh, and that's a fact. And, and you can, they can talk all the like about, you know, finding alternative sources it is not possible. I mean, uh, mm. if, if there was an energy disruption, a gas, particularly tomorrow, then yes, Europe could ride through it until the autumn, until the winter, uh, perhaps. In other words, maybe in the rest of this year, where reserves are quite high. Um, but they, uh, you know, everybody uh, agrees. Uh, and there's been a couple of reports on this from, from very, obviously, authoritative places like Wood Mackenzie, whatever, essentially all saying the same thing, is the yeah. picture would be very different next spring and Russia would very, or Europe would run into an energy crisis by next spring at the latest. It would mean industries shutting down, particularly yeah, across Germany. Rolling blackouts. We've written and about you, it you too. You would have it's a recession possible. in Europe, then it would bring, it probably then cause a global recession. So in other words, you simply can't do it, and and you you can blame dependency all you like, but it doesn't matter. The fact is that's the way it is today. Yeah. So even if if Europe, may, and of course the other thing that uh, makes me with a smile, I don't mean in such a serious context, but you know when people are being deliberately selective of information or maybe haven't done their research properly, and you get people saying, "Well, you look LNG is great. Look how much LNG Europe is importing." Uh, and, and therefore that can be, you know, a, a substitute for Russian gas. And they don't look up the fact that the biggest supplier of LNG for the last two years is Russia in, into Europe. It used to be the US, but now it's Russia. Um, but isn't so, it the, yeah. the, the 200 BCMs of gas that go from Russia to Europe? I mean, that's a third of the global LNG production. Yeah. And you can't take that and then third of the, the production because you cause an energy crisis in Asia as well. Exactly. And, and actually one of the reasons why gas reservoirs are now uh, you know kind of near the, uh, the average 
uh, is because there actually has been uh, you know, a much milder winter in Asia, which has allowed LNG shipments then to go to Europe. Uh, but you get a normal, say, winter in, in Asia, mm. then, then there's, that, that won't happen. And that's why, you know, the project say, well, you well, might just about muddle through for a few months, but a crisis the gas, is... The gas is also an argument why you can't take out SWIFT, because, I mean, I talked to yeah. Alina Rybkorka, and she said, like, well, if you turn off SWIFT, then Germany cannot pay for its gas. So exactly, again, you're, you're breaching contract. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is... You know, this is the one thing about Putin, and uh, you know, there's uh, it, 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 that we've observed over the last twenty years. And I remember one of my former bosses would always preach to me. He said, "Never look for a plan; look for convictions." And uh, you know, there are certain things that Putin personally believes in, and they do crop up in policy and direct policy. And you know, one of those, for example, is uh, this conservative approach that he's had towards uh, towards the budget and towards saving. He doesn't like borrowing money. He likes mm -hmm. to have plenty of money in the bank in case there's a a rainy day, whether he causes it or not, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, he supported Kudrin's efforts to, uh, in terms of, of budget restraint, creating the National Fund. He preached against debt. We heard that a lot in 2009 when Russian companies were caught offside with foreign debt, uh, the currency devalued, and, and he had to bail them out. So, you know, this constant preaching about being conservative and, and re reducing your, your, uh, your, 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 uh, your, your exposure to, to foreign debt, yeah. but also you know, contracts have to be honored. And, and I know people might cynically laugh at that given what's happening, but, you know, there are two sides to this guy and, and he has constantly preached about, if you have a contract, you honor it. So- Well, that's the legacy the from the, the 70s when the uh, gas business was set up. It's, it's yeah. always been, have to be reliable. Because I was just reading this morning that um, ironically, the war has started and yet transit of Russian gas um, through Ukraine has suddenly jumped from whatever it was, 23, yeah. To, to 60 just in the last few days while the I, I fighting's think, going on yeah and i think you know russia's making a point uh, as it were you know we are a, a reliable energy partner and we will remain so provided you honor you, you know provided you honor your side of the contract which is you pay us then we will deliver and, isn't that because uh, they've got a hundred years of gas in yamal and that's all bottled up and really can only go through the nor northern routes into germany that's that, that, that or, gas very well, hard also, to send to China. Yeah, or you, yeah, you marry expensive infrastructure and, and you end up with power of Siberia 5, 6, and 7, never mind 1 mm. and 2. Uh, but I think the other reason, uh, yeah, and again, just pure guesswork, but I'll throw it out there, as to why they're increasing gas flow to Ukraine is, is they're making a point that if there was a friendlier government in, in, in Kiev or a government that you know, wasn't hostile to Russia, then Russia could continue using the, the Drozba pipeline and could put a lot more gas through it than it currently is, mm. uh, you know, in, in respective of Nord Stream 2. So, you know, I think somebody's just making a subtle point. But the main one is that we're not going to disrupt energies just because we're at war, because we are a reliable supplier. That's I think the only the bankers have noticed. I haven't seen anybody report it, although we're going to write it up. Um, just a quick one, a very specific one. Because there's a lot of talk and the reporting coming out of Kiev, there was uh, reports of rockets and some reports of soldiers. Do you think that the Russian will attempt to take Kiev? Do you think it's possible? Uh, I would. I would have thought not possible, frankly. Um, I mean, you you could certainly control key parts of the infrastructure. You can turn the lights on and off, control the you know the transport links in and out, the rail links, the road links, the airport. But in terms of taking the city. 
you know, in terms of occupation where you control everything and the people, uh, I would have thought that was... It's uh, a huge time. It takes months, yeah. wouldn't it? I mean, Absolutely. the urban fighting. Well, you, know, you, you and I have been in Kiev lots of times and you think, well, how in God's sake would you even do this? But yeah. you can control the infrastructure. And I guess that's how you do it. You control the TV tower, you control the rail station, you control mm. the, the major junctions, but that's not really controlling the city. It, it just gives you temporary management, you know, uh, over a, a per brief period of, of time. Well, Klitsch, Klitschko but, just handed out 10,000 um, firearms uh, yesterday. So yeah, there's a so lot of armed people there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and uh, people, anybody who can buy a get a weapon can, can, can use it, etc. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I would have thought we are now getting at this point where uh, I go back to your theory. You know, Russia has clearly made a very strong point, has been punished for it. But if it were to kind of now you know, kind of withdraw into the east, then the legacy is, it would, it's a game changer in the sense that, you know, that the uh, Russia's grievances would have to be taken more seriously and the Russia threat would have to be taken seriously because they could come back. Um, um, but anyway, Jim, we'll see. Jim Ensel has asked the question, um, your views are if there's any read through to China and the China-Taiwan uh, dispute because that's in the background and the Chinese yeah. are obviously watching this closely and they're not going to harm themselves by supporting Russia but they no. in principle put themselves behind Russia and said like we think Russia has legitimate security concerns and they're the same concerns we have. I yeah. Is there any read through to Taiwan and China on this? Well yes and no I mean it, it, it is uh, by no accident or coincidence that China is emphasizing uh, Russia's security concerns. Uh, it, is, it is not supporting the Russian, you know, invasion or not, you know, annexation. They did support Crimea because of the historic, you know, links between uh, Russia and Crimea, which has got the analogy, of course, of, of China and Taiwan. So uh, Crimea, Russia is very similar to Taiwan, China in the minds of people in Beijing. So they supported that, but they did, they do not support you know, Russia kind of invading and occupying Ukraine, but instead they they, they emphasize Russia's legitimate security concerns. And of course that that's they are. But in terms of a retreat to uh, to Taiwan, uh, maybe, and, and again, look, we're, we're going off uh, in a stretch here, but uh, I think the fact that, you know, the Europe and the US backed away from Ukraine support very quickly uh, you know, and I guess, you know, the, the fact that this may have, have, have maybe encouraged speed of what the Kremlin has done or, or, or not, again, who knows, but, you know, as soon as there's a sign of trouble, the U.S. Embassy decamps to live and then into Poland, State Biden makes clear that no U.S. troops would go into Ukraine, uh, you know, others withdrew their forces, it, it's after very quickly once it became clear that this invasion threat was happening. So the Chinese may therefore say, well, you know what, that's what's going to happen to Taiwan uh, mm. because, you know, there, there, there is no um, defense uh, agreement between the U.S. and Taiwan. There is a support agreement and a military support agreement, but not a defense cooperation. In other words, the U.S. is not obliged or obligated to go uh, in to defend Taiwan if China invades. They can give them plenty of encouragement and support and sanction China. Uh, so maybe they will look at this, uh, how it plays out and, and the playbook, and, uh, and that might then influence what China does next in, if, in, in Taiwan. But the fact everyone, that the West did not you know, stand yeah. up to Russia with military, China will definitely factor that into whatever it's thinking about Taiwan.
There, there's, I mean, you could argue, I think, extremely strongly now that Putin's made a definitive break with the uh, with the West. In so much as everyone talking to my German diplomat friends here, the the shock of Crimea. They thought, yeah, look, Russia's difficult. It's corrupt. Yeltsin's drunk all the time. It's kind of crazy. Putin, we're not so sure about him. However, um, we have a relationship, we're doing lots of business there, and it's just going to take time to sort out. And then came Crimea, and everyone was in shock, and they thought, we, we were not expecting that, you know, grabbing territory, and it fundamentally changed things. However, since then, there's been this sort of pragmatic kind of prickly relationship where, um, you know, it's a sort of polite incivility between Russia um, and th there's been no admission that it's an enemy. And I think that's what's changed now is that it's an enemy, that it's, yeah. mili it's a military invader on and threatener of other peoples and we're all at threat. And so all of that stuff that stands behind NATO suddenly becomes real again, that NATO is actually, we need it because we have an enemy again. Yeah. Oh, Pache, it's, it's, it's a godsend to the uh, Western defense companies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, suddenly when they were, Afghanistan but, is finished, and then wow, no, we have another one. Yeah, so do do you think um, but the, the relationship with China? I mean, it's you know been pragmatic, but uh, to what extent is this going to split the world? Because the Chinese are backing the Russians in so much as they have the same beef with the states that it's a unipolar power that um, we want Taiwan back, and the states are going to interfere with that, and the, the two of them are being driven together so that. And for Russia, strategically, that makes sense because, you know, Biden's made it clear, I want to get rid of the Russian problem so I can focus on the Chinese problem. But if the China says, right, now it's us and Russia, so you haven't got rid of one problem, you just made your existing problem even bigger. And moreover, you're saying one of the two of us is an enemy. Is yeah. that playing out? Are they, Beijing's always going to be now, we go slower, quieter, yeah, don't really care I, I about mean, Russia? I'm definitely more inclined towards the, the latter view, uh, mm. You know, obviously, it, it suits China to criticize the, the U.S. and uh, and and NATO for, as we've heard uh, from their foreign ministry, they they ignored their statement says that uh, that NATO and the West ignored Russia's legitimate concerns, uh, and as and their actions uh, inactions have led to this situation. So that's the Chinese foreign ministry view for sure. Um, and to the extent that this is causing great discomfort in the West, clearly that suits Beijing. Uh, they can sit back and watch this uh, play out. But I still don't see any uh, scenario where, you know, Russia, for example, completely abandons the West and becomes, you know, uh, much more dependent uh, and, and, and uh, to, to China. Um, you know, and, and ends up in this kind of, you know, again, the, 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 the cliche that I talked about, the, you know, China's little brother. Uh, Moscow doesn't want that. Uh, right now, it suits them, you know, to have this growing relationship with China and it allows them to diversify their trade and business risk. Because remember, in 2014, as Europeans were complaining about the dependency on Russian energy, and the vulnerability to Russian energy, Moscow also woke up to the fact that, you know, we are just as exposed to revenues mm. from one source uh, and we need to do something about it. And arguably, Russia has been more successful in diversifying um, its customer base for energy mm. than Europe has been. And one of the reasons for that is because of Western sanctions forced Russia into a faster pace that might have happened, uh, might otherwise have, have happened. But I definitely see Russia's view of China as one of you know, diversification uh, of, of certainly where they've been able to, 
you know, tap into China's resources. Well, that's going to go much rest. faster now. But, but I you, do. You, I do think you saw that um, speech by Miller, I think it was in September, where he was banging on about China, and he got really excited. He said, like, this is enormous, the potential here. Well, of course, yeah, because he's Gazprom, and, and you know, their they, they're, they're, they're big customer base is, uh, is, is Europe, and therefore they're completely vulnerable. Uh, mm. And now they have a second one where they can balance one against the other. So, of course, that's absolutely uh, perfect for, for Gazprom, if you look at that company on its own. Um, you know, Mr. Sachin is a different view. You know, uh, he, of course, he's always very pro-China, and, and of course, they have the the big uh, oil pipeline. But uh, Mr. Sachin actually wants to sell gas to Europe, and, uh, and of course, we know one of the options for Nord Stream two, if and when it gets you know viable, uh, in order to comply with the European Energy Directive, then Gazprom will only be able to fill fifty percent of that pipe, and Mr. Sachin will be ready to fill the other fifty percent. So. Really, yeah. it's about diversification. It's not about, you know, we, we now think China is our best friend and, and not Europe. It's because they want two best friends and not one. Let's come back um, briefly and take a quick look at the, um, the, the domestic polit uh, political situation in so much as, you know, Russia marched into Ukraine at 5 a.m. in the morning yesterday. And then by the early evening, there were protests in 50 cities and 1,700 people were reported arrested. And that this is not a popular war with the Russian people. No. Uh, they don't like it. Uh, they don't think they should be there. Which means that if, if Putin's going for like an occupation strategy or holding the whole of Eastern Ukraine, um, not just the Donbass, then that's going to be a protracted war. It's going to go on for a while. And yeah. that surely at home, this is going to, the protests are going to get louder and louder. And so much yes. as this could undo Putin. I mean, he could actually finally face his color revolution. Well, it, it certainly is a risk. And I think it's something that the, you know, here to the Kremlin has becoming more and more worried about. So this changing demographic that I mentioned a couple mm. of years ago, I remember when we had that uh, proposal in the Duma, I think it was in, in, in June, 2019, to uh, look at uh, probably limiting the foreign ownership of Yandex. Uh, and of course that played out. And really what it was about was uh, the government forcing Yandex management to accept an editorial board where they could have mm. more control over the content of Yandex. And, and that all came from a, a big independent survey that was just published in the spring of 19, which essentially the, 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 the grab all headline was, yeah, 60% uh, of everybody under the age of 36 uh, got their news on political mm. opinion from internet sources and not from mainstream media. And, and Mr. Karyenko just blew a fuse and, and you know, wanted control of the internet, et cetera. So they've been aware about this changing dynamic for a while. And I absolutely agree with you. A projected war that leads to a steady stream of casualties coming home um, is, is something that would unravel this kind of stable political, social political dynamic that we've had. We saw it at the second Chechen war. I mean, 20 years ago, I remember this yeah. movement, the mothers against war yeah, yeah. were protesting and it, and it led to an acceleration to get soldiers that mothers. In. It was called soldiers mothers. No, yeah, soldiers mothers. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. It, it led to a, a real efforts by the, the government to, uh, to, to, to bring that war to an end. And it's one of the reasons people argue is why Russian forces didn't go into Syria in any great numbers on the, on the military or the uh, mm. air force. Uh, because they are wary of that. So I, I really do think that the Kremlin will factor that in. And one of the reasons why I agree with you, it's much less likely that they will try to occupy the whole country over a period of time. Because 
will lead to a steady flow of, of, of casualties coming home, and it will definitely accelerate those protests. If any, already that that balance is is more delicate than it was 20 years ago because people have changed and they've grown up and they have more demands and you know they're 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 more interested in in healthcare and job security than they are in geopolitics, mm. uh, and are less willing to accept you know whatever the, the government uh, tells them and and it would be more willing to to react against that. So. Okay, what we're seeing in terms of protests now, I think that's kind of like, I would call that the Navalny effect, which is that you're always able to get a certain number of people out across the country um, mm. in, in relatively small numbers, but with a much more amplified voice. In other words, they're very active and very savvy on social internet, mm. and therefore the impression is that it's much more widespread and much more well-supported uh, than it actually is. But uh, I think the real issue is that you know, the, the groundswell of, of people who are younger or even middle-aged, uh, if their lives are, are more adversarially affected by what's happening uh, for something that they really don't support, and I think that's clear, this is not Crimea, uh, then then that starts to change the dynamic. And, and it's, it's, it's there, but it's... Things. Yeah. Probably not explosive. I mean, I don't think it's enough. Not to unless the economy deteriorates, and I think this is why you know energy prices are the government's ability to to fund subsidies uh, and to support well, families. Well, let's, let's support, cover that. I mean, we're, we're we're in the home straight, and, and I wanted also briefly to um, look at the the economy and the effect of the sanctions, and that everybody's been saying very stringently, harshest sanctions <laughs> ever. That von Leyen was saying that. We want to hobble the economy. We want to degrade Russia's uh, underlying economy and, it's, and make it slow it down, um, take away the tech so that it can't compete in the 21st century, is what Biden said. However, talking to, to the analysts, um, the sanctions don't have that power, it seems to me. I mean, they're, they're going to cause a lot of pain. The ones that stood out uh, that uh, the spare the banks, they're going to hit 70% of the banks and make it, make it unable to. To deal in dollars which is going to be a problem but it doesn't actually cripple the economy though does it no no it, it doesn't uh it, it's it certainly makes it more difficult to uh you know to conduct tra transactions and, and trade etc but it doesn't cripple the economy no and uh you know the the uh, again whether by accident or, or, or design uh russia's balance sheet has never been this strong it's never been as in good a position and uh, it means, therefore, the government has got significant amount of financial firepower to, to provide subsidies to, mm. you know, uh, to cover any problems that emerge, to maintain jobs, to maintain stability, albeit at a low level. And you're not achieving diversification. And by perhaps big grand project programs like the national goals and national projects, those are maybe are substantially reduced or are sidelined indefinitely because the money might will be needed to maintain stability. But it, uh, it, it, if, if the goal of sanctions is to, uh, you know, destabilize the economy and, you know, uh, and cripple the economy or cause a financial crisis, well, that's just not going to happen. Forget it. So look, then uh, but, gas but and it, oil it sanctions. It's certainly growth. It, it, so, it, so gas and oil sanctions are off the table because you cause an energy mm -hmm. crisis. SWIFT is off the table because you also cause an energy crisis, yeah. plus maybe destabilize European financial system. Um, so they're not left with much. Uh, they're going after some oligarchs. They're going to hit the banks and make life difficult for them, but they won't make life difficult. But that's it. That's a good way to put it. it is, sanctions make life more difficult, but they don't stop. And for like, for example, let's just say, you know, if, if you're in, in, in Russia and you need to transact with, with the US 
you know, now, uh, up to now, you just do that easily uh, with, 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 with Sparebank, but you can't do that. Mm. But instead, you just go and open a bank account probably in Halleck Bank in, in Nursal mm. 10. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and you can transfer money instantly from Sparebank to Nursal to, to say Halleck Bank, just to use a name. And then mm. Halleck Bank will transfer to you. So it's a bit more inconvenient, a little bit more cost, but it doesn't stop the trade. My, my view on uh, the sanctions is that individually they're ineffective. However, collectively, what they've done is they forced Putin to build up this enormous reserves to keep the debt extremely low yeah. uh, and to run an austerity budget or you yeah. know, for a system. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then that limits the GDP to potential now is only 2%. And it should not be that. It should be double yeah. or three times. I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, and that, that's, that's the exactly actual that's the actual cost of sanctions. Yeah. But Putin's also showed that, like I said before, because of this Soviet mentality, that security is more important than prosperity. And if people have to live a less prosperous life, so be it. It's your duty to the state. Because well, that's more the, yeah. But this is again go back to what we're saying about is, is that that was absolutely 100% valid for people who are now you know of of, of that age group, uh, pensioners or you know, et cetera, maybe public sector uh, workers, et cetera. But the, the big question mark is how valid is that with the kind of emerging and faster growing uh, population yeah. who've got different attitudes? Um, I remember Look, seven years the, ago, um, actually just on this last point, it was years ago, I, I won't mention his name now publicly, but a former deputy minister, you know, kind of younger generation who's been critical of of government policies at various times, but he made a presentation at one of our briefings, um, you know, a long time ago, pre-COVID, uh, and he said, you know, the good thing about Russia today is it's a very stable country. And then he stopped for a moment and he said, and the worst thing about the country today is that it's a very stable country. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's it's exactly that point, is that yeah. the mentality of the people at the top is that as long as you've got stability and people have got bread, everybody be happy. I would say that's now an enormously questionable thesis because yeah. of the shift in the population. And, and it's, it's becoming less so every yeah. day. And people in the Kremlin, I think at least a lot of people in the Kremlin understand that, which is why you, you now have this kind of much, I wouldn't say suppression, but much greater control over social media, internet, et cetera, because they're worried about losing control over this generation. And um, so, so, yeah, I think I agree with you. It's the accumulated effect of sanctions on investment and the ability to diversify and the ability to grow it is uh, anybody who thinks that sanctions are going to cripple the economy and cause a crisis, they're wrong. But which it's is the long-term um, effect. Brings me to, to my last question, um, that everyone's been shocked again. Everyone's mm. caught out. Russia has invaded. And it's not just like there was a referendum and you know the troops actually were already living there. There wasn't an invasion. Everyone keeps saying Crimea was invaded. It wasn't. However, this is a proper full-on invasion. Um, yeah. It's as ugly as it gets. Has Russia now definitively wrecked its investment case? Because as I say before, everyone was like politely doing business and not talking about the problems, but now it's the enemy. I mean, is this going to wreck it? Are, are any investors going to buy equities, bonds, or all the, 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 the foreign retailers over here, are they going to bother reinvesting or are they going to leave? I mean, is, it, is this the end of Russia as an investment story for, for Western Europe? No, no, it's not. It, it's it's certainly, uh, um, you know, and clearly a lot depends on what happens next. And, and you really have to go back to those scenarios. If, if you have this scenario of full occupation and daily reports of sabotage and people being arrested and kind of old style Stasi, then probably we're closer to that negative scenario you talked about. Western companies reputationally, et cetera, would probably not be able to stay here no matter how profitable 
it, it is in that scenario. Mm. But on the other hand, if, if Russia achieves an objective and then pulls back and you end up with this kind of uh, more stable stalemate, uh, then I don't think they, they will pull back um, and because it is a profitable market and uh, and 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 there is is potential, but if you make it difficult for them to stay by having that you know worst case scenario, uh, then they leave and it'll become uninvestable. But what it has done though is it, it makes it more difficult for investors from from the west. It makes it easier for investors from the east and maybe even the Middle East or subcontinent, uh, and it makes it more difficult for. To attract investment into, shall we say, discretionary sectors. So, mm. you know, uh, somebody who doesn't need to be in Russia, perhaps a, a consumer company or a service company, there, there's absolutely nothing now compelling for them to come to Russia whatsoever. On the other hand, if you're in a, in a, a sector where Russia is dominant, such as energy or, you know, climate management coming up, renewable energy coming up, the development of hydrogen, all these areas where Russia will also have a huge competitive advantage relative to others in the future then you'll want to come here and you still want to come to, 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 to Russia to be investing in, in, in those sectors. So uh, I, I guess the bottom line is that what's happened now makes it more difficult for Russia to diversify its economy uh, mm. and to you know, reduce the dependency on its uh, traditional strengths. But it shouldn't make it any more difficult to continue the sort of investment into these sectors as we've seen in the past, unless the situation in Ukraine really gets a lot worse. Do you know what I actually think from this whole episode, um, it's tragic in the classic sense because Russia came and wanted to do a security deal. The bottom line is that we have no intention of offering Ukraine NATO membership anytime soon, anytime, say, in the next decade. And that there was an opportunity to actually deal with all this dirty laundry and had a security deal been done so that Putin felt a bit more confident than he could um, scale down his fiscal fortress. Russia would have boomed, it would have prospered, investment would have come in because it becomes a boom market and that's the basis of a good relationship. Look at Germany, post-war Germany compared to Germany today. And it's all gone pear-shaped uh, and we're now worse off than we were. And neither Russia nor, nor uh, the West are better off from this conflict. Uh, no, no, there's, there's absolutely... Well, no, I was going to say there's no winner from this. There is China. Uh, mm. China has uh, been able to get exposure to uh, material supply. It has greatly uh, strengthened its secure supply of materials for its economy, whether it's energy or coal or, or, or other materials. They're now coming across land on very secure lines uh, from the world's biggest producer, both in Central Asia as well as Russia. Uh, and every time the you know, Western company is not available to invest in a new project, China is there with its checkbook open if it suits mm. the Chinese cause. So you can't say nobody's won from, from this crisis. The Chinese clearly have, and to a mm. very great extent, but nobody else has. On that note, Chris, uh, thank you very much for participating. Fascinating. Dark days, definitely. But yes. um, we, I don't know, it's Russia. Get better. It's, Hope, yes, we well, we always want the best and end up with what we always get. This is the Russia story and it hasn't changed one bit. So yeah. thanks again. I hope to see you in Moscow soon. Yeah, okay, look forward to it. Okay, bye. Okay. And to the listeners, thank you very much for, uh, I hope you, for participating. I hope you found that um, interesting. Um, I'd like to plug the, the publication. If you're interested in all of this, then... Um, 
we're in our editor's picks. Uh, if you go to this website, Intellinews slash welcome, you can sign up for editor's picks. At the moment, the editor's picks is all the reporting we're doing on the war every day for free, um, but it usually contains our best stories from the last 24 hours. Also, um, if you're in the game and you want to find out more about not just Russia, but all the countries, the former Soviet Union, Central Asia, down into North Africa, then I highly recommend you take a look at our premium service, the Pro, uh, which you can sign up and, and try for two weeks without cost. Um, and on that note, I'd like to thank you very much. Um, I shall see about organizing another meeting um, fairly soon. I'll let you know. All the best. <laughs>